So that's what I'm trying to tell my body. It's only six, right? But uh, a great, a great privilege. Uh, good to see uh, Pastor Sam and Jody uh, again. Um, and uh, actually, Jody took our daughter's senior high school pictures. So uh, she's quite a photographer. Anyway, um, we uh, when when Sam was at Westminster Seminary, California, I was actually still teaching New Testament, and then I switched about two years later into practical theology. Uh, and I need to tell you a little bit about sort of my biography of, of interacting with the book of Revelation. It may resonate with some of you as well. Uh, I was born in 1948, which means I share a birthday with the, the modern state of Israel, same year it was founded. Uh, I grew up in a church where we didn't talk about last things in eschatology all the time, but when we did, we, had, we kept one eye on the newspaper and especially one eye on what was happening in the Middle East. Uh, I remember as a young child actually um, having nightmares after seeing film strips. Nobody knows what film strips are anymore, but a few of you might remember. You know, There were films out that were moving pictures, but film strips are sort of like a bunch of slides put together. Uh, views of the book of Revelation, and I got nightmares from that. Um, and then the Billy Graham Association came out with the, the film Thief in the Night, and I was afraid that I was going to be left behind, and this was before the Left Behind series. Um, so I only semi-laugh when Sam says, you know, people stay home, they're going to miss the rapture, because I was terrified of that, actually. Um, then I went to seminary. Then I was a pastor in New Jersey, and then I was a pastor in East L.A., and then I was invited to join the staff of Westminster Seminary, California, just getting started out in the San Diego area. And the senior New Testament professor, I was the junior guy in New Testament, said, you can teach any course in our New Testament curriculum as long as you also will take the course on Hebrews to Revelation, the end of the New Testament, all the general epistles in Revelation. And it wasn't, it was like an offer you can't refuse. So I said, I'll take Paul, and yeah, okay, I'll take Hebrews to Revelation. Because when I had gone to seminary at Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia, I knew how to handle that course. You spend about 12, 13, 14 weeks on Hebrews, and then say, oh, look at the time. <laughs> so that was my approach in the first few years. Um, I eventually to make a very long story even longer. Amazingly, I ended up writing a book on the book of Revelation called Triumph of the Lamb. And so that's the title you see on your outlines, Triumph of the Lamb. That wasn't the title I gave the manuscript, but the publisher said, this fits what you wrote and the book of Revelation better than the title you chose. I've gotten more compliments on that title than any title I've ever chosen. But anyway, Triumph of the Lamb. And in the very first page of the text of that book, I quote a New Testament professor from the 19th century by the name of Moses Stewart. I have his two-volume, about almost 1,100 pages total commentary, in which he says at the beginning, when I started teaching New Testament, my, I, my students asked me to talk about the book of Revelation. They began to importune me. Sounds like 19th century language, right? They began to beg me, teach us on the book of Revelation. He said, I went after it. I tried to apply all that I understood from the other parts of the New Testament. And I came back to them and I said, I'm paraphrasing 
He says it much more elegantly, like a Victorian American would. Um, I, I don't have anything useful to say to you on the book of Revelation. I can't understand it. You know how rare it is for a seminary professor to ever confess to anybody, I don't understand anything? We're, uh, yeah, we've got, we've got an image to uphold. Um, and then Stuart said, I decided I wouldn't say anything in the classroom on the book of Revelation for ten years, and in all my spare time, I would focus on the Old Testament prophets. Because he had realized that at least he needed to understand the Old Testament in order to get the book of Revelation. The imagery, the symbolism is, to a large extent, the Holy Spirit led John, drew John to think about images from Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, as well as other Old Testament texts. Uh, Well, I was not quite as wise and cautious as Moses Stewart. And I think before it was before... Ten years were up that I started to try to say a little something on the book of Revelation and to really study it again. It had kind of terrified me. I thought it was perhaps meant just to confuse us. No, I didn't really know. I knew better than that. But I knew it was confusing to me. And I began to work more and more. Uh, I, I was struck by how often sometimes I'd heard sermon series that start off strong in Revelation 1 and go strong through chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. And then the pastor seems to say, oh, look at the time. And once you get into the really meaty stuff, chapters 4 to 22, there's, you know, then we move on to something else. But the more I worked, the more I became convinced that Revelation actually lives up to the name that God assigned to it, actually, the the first verse of the book of Revelation is a title. Some of the books in the New Testament have been sort of assigned titles, like 2 Peter. Well, Peter wrote that, and it's the second letter we have, so 2 Peter. But this one, God, in the Word itself, assigns the title, The Revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, and so on. We're going to look at that whole chapter, actually, because I think it really shows us that this book is actually given not to confuse us and probably not to arm us so that we think we can kind of micro-predict the second coming of Christ. In other words, that's not its purpose. Since Jesus said more than once during his earthly ministry, And also, after his resurrection, he said to his disciples, don't think you're going to be able to predict the time of my coming. Know it is certain, and know just as certainly, that the timing is in the province of God, and you're not going to be able to predict it. So be ready. So be ready. So that's not what Revelation is about, but it really is given to reveal, and as I worked with the book year after year, teaching it little by little, kind of like Moses Stewart did, though perhaps more audaciously or something, foolishly, uh, I think I got some of the keys that really help us to get this book. Now, here we are Friday evening. Some of you are retired. Some of you have come from a work day. Uh, I'm going to ask you to put on your thinking cap because we're going to work through that outline tonight and look a little bit at the the 
somewhat colored chart as well. It helps us to get a structure of the book of Revelation. But what I want to do first is just for us to hear the first chapter, the whole first chapter, because uh, I want to draw seven keys that are all introduced in this first chapter that are going to help us unlock the imagery, the symbolism, and the message of the book of Revelation. And that's where our, that's our task for tonight. And then tomorrow morning in our two sessions, we're going to look at some of the sections of the book that are key sections of the book. Uh, and in Sunday school on Sunday morning, we're going to look at one more. We're going to look at the thousand years in Revelation 20. So you better be here for Sunday school. That's the one you really all want to come to. And then we're also going to be hearing the word preached. I'm going to open up the beautiful vision in, Rome, in Revelation 5 of the Lamb uh, who has conquered. The lion who conquered by becoming the lamb who was slain. So that's sort of the agenda for the whole weekend. But first, we really need to get it. Listen to Revelation and how it teaches us how to read and understand its visions. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, 
I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God. May he give us wisdom. Scripture in Revelation calls us to seek a mind of wisdom to understand. So here are the keys. You see them on the outline. First is, pretty obvious, but it's true. Revelation is given to reveal. The Greek word for revelation is apokalypsis, apocalypse. Some versions actually render it that way. And when we hear the word apocalyptic, I think sometimes we think of sort of a cataclysmic disaster of some sort. Uh, some years ago, a film came out about the Vietnam War called Apocalypse Now. Disaster. The word apocalypse does not mean disaster. It means unveiling. It means revealing. So, revelation is a really good translation of that Greek term. It is the unveiling or the revealing of Jesus Christ. It, it refers to God taking away what the Greeks would call a kaluma. A pa, taking away, a kaluma, taking away a veil. And what it implies is that the events of history as we see them, wars, natural disasters, human-caused disasters, elections, politics, economics, those things are, in a sense, on the surface of things. But there are forces and factors behind the scenes that really explain what's going on in the world. It's as if Revelation's visions function like a kind of a CAT scan or an MRI. You you may have something that's a little off with your health. It might show on your skin, it might not. You might be flushed, you might be pale, you might be sweaty, but you're not quite sure what. And sometimes the doctors say, we need, in a sense, we need to look inside. (laughs) We need an MRI. We need to see what's going on beneath the skin. Revelation is kind of God doing that for us. In a highly, vividly, symbolic way, God is saying, I want you to get a glimpse of the realities behind the realities that you see. In the world, you won't really understand what's going on in history on the big scale or even in your own life on that small scale in which we live unless you also understand what's going on in the spiritual realm. So revelation is God unveiling, kind of taking us beneath the skin of our surface experience and showing us some of the dynamics that are going on behind the scenes. And it is a revelation, as we see here, of Jesus Christ. It's really all about Christ. I don't know that I got that impression from the film strips of my childhood. I thought it was more about danger and disaster and warfare and horrible things. But Revelation says it's about Christ. 
Now, it's realistic in showing us that we're in the midst of a spiritual battle. There's no question about that. So it's not glossing over all of the conflict in our lives and in the life of the church down through the centuries. Not at all. But its focus is on Jesus Christ. It reveals him. It's about him. You heard the first vision that's given to John. He turns to see a voice. And the source of the voice is one like a son of man. Well, that language comes right out of Daniel 7. We'll look a little bit more at that in a little bit. He sees Jesus as the slain and risen, standing, victorious lamb in chapter 5. That echoes Isaiah 53, promising that the suffering servant would be slain calmly, quietly, as a sacrificial lamb. He sees Revelation 12, that a woman, an amazing, powerful sign, a woman gives birth to a child whom the dragon, Satan, wants to destroy, but cannot destroy. That goes back all the way to Genesis 3.15. God promises that an offspring of the woman will come to crush the head of Satan, the serpent. He sees also in Revelation 12 that Christ Jesus is described there as the Christ who will shatter the nations with a rod of iron. That's from Psalm chapter 2. He sees Jesus as the sword-wielding word of God, Revelation 19. He hears Jesus, as you heard him here, say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. He's the infinite God who has always lived and always triumphed over all of history. It's about Jesus Christ. But it's the revelation of Jesus Christ from another sense as well, and that is, it's the revelation that Jesus reveals. Did you notice that in the first few verses? God gave him this revelation, Jesus this revelation, to show his servants things that must soon take place. And Jesus made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, to all that he saw. Now, there's a kind of a, a chain of transmission there, uh, a, a delivery. God gives the revelation to Christ. Christ gives the revelation to an angel. The angel gives the revelation to John, and John declares it to the churches by writing the book. We actually see two of those links in the chain in visions later on. Revelation 4 and 5, we will see God, the one seated on the throne, give a sealed scroll. We're going to look at this more on Sunday morning in worship. A sealed scroll to the Lamb. And then subsequently we see the Lamb opening the seals of the scroll and revealing what's in the scroll. That's that's the Father to the Son authorizing the Son to reveal God's plan and victory for victory in history. And then in chapter 10, an angel appears to John with the scroll open and hands the scroll to John and says, now, just as Ezekiel was to bite and eat and consume and then preach the word of God, you do the same, John. So Christ is not just the subject being revealed, but he's also the agent doing the revealing to his church through these visions he's speaking to us. All that means, as we approach the book of Revelation, we should approach it with expectancy. We should expect 
to understand it. We should anticipate that we will get blessing from it. And we should focus on Jesus. One more thing on that point. Sort of files into the second as well. But we should expect to receive the blessing here simply by hearing the book read aloud. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads the book. I'm using the English Standard Version. And they, they rightly render one, the one who reads aloud the book and the many who hear the book. Because what that verse implies is the way that the first century Christians in Ephesus and Smyrna and Thyatira and all the other, the way they would have experienced the book. John was on a prison island, Patmos, and somehow managed, as he received these visions, wrote them down, managed to have a messenger bring them to these churches, which were in the western part of what is now Turkey. And probably a messenger went from church to church to church, up the coast from Ephesus and then inland, and then finally looping around into Laodicea. I'm picturing the map from my point of view that way. Got it? Turkey? Uh, the order of the cities is exactly the order that a, carry, a, a, a messenger would carry the book. In other words, when he got to each city, he wouldn't say, now everybody turn in your Bibles to the last book of the Bible. Because they didn't have it in front of them. They heard it. One reader, many listeners, and God says, blessing can come not just to the reader, but to the listeners from having heard it read aloud. Now, I'm glad for cross-references. I'm glad for commentaries. I'm glad for concordances. I'm glad that we've got the Bible here on the page so that we can flip back and forth and try to figure out what's going on. But the amazing thing is, God promised to his first century believers, you can get the blessing that this book promises by hearing it read aloud. In the San Diego area, we have a Christian residence theater company, Lambs Players Theater. Years ago, they hosted a one-man, one-night act, an actor who came to Lambs Players Theater and recited the book of Revelation from 1-1 all the way through to the end, from to 22-21. Just straight through. He walked around a little bit, but no props, no costumes, no sets, just the book of Revelation. Maybe as close to the experience of the first century hearers as we could have. And it was powerful. We could receive the blessing. We couldn't get all the details straightened out. Sure enough, you need something more than that. No doubt these churches, if they had somebody who could write, would copy over that book and, and, and then have it read again and again. But you can hear it. You can get it. So go with expectation and focus on Jesus. So that's the first key. That's the first key. Now, second key relates to that, actually. Because this is a book, not just to be heard but also to be seen, to be seen. It is a book that in which God brings a multimedia presentation through words, but he is intending to paint vivid images on our imagination. 
that works well if you're only hearing the word, if he's really painting pictures on your imagination. It was effective. That's why I had nightmares as a kid, because I could really see those, those visions. Here, in the beginning of Revelation, we're told that God is going to speak in symbols, in visible ways, in a lot of different ways. First of all, he says, God gave him the book, verse 1, to show his servants things that must soon take place. You're going to see it. Secondly, the verb that here is translated, he made it known. Old King James Version, I think, actually translated a little better. He signified it, because the word that's used there is related to the word sign that appears elsewhere in the book of Revelation. And the word that he uses here is also a word that has visual overtones to it. He made it visible by signs, by sending his angel to his servant. And obviously, as John says, John is testifying, end of verse 2, to all that he saw. God is communicating in vision form. Some of the, some of the things John saw are clearly labeled signs. They are images that stand for something else. So, for example, I mentioned a few minutes ago, in Revelation 12, John says he saw a great sign, a woman who was about to give birth to a child, a male child who would rule the nations, and a dragon, another great sign. Now, the church I grew up in, with the film strips, and with the Left Behind series eventually, and with Thief in the Night, we, we said, you know, there's a lot of things in Revelation pretty confusing. And probably, rather than letting our imaginations run wild about symbolism, we should just interpret it as literally as we can, as many places as we possibly can. And I've had dialogues with New Testament scholars that I have high respect for who take that approach But I have never, ever met anybody who seriously studied the book of Revelation that really tries to take everything as literally as they possibly can because we instinctively recognize that at points God is speaking in imagery. Two great signs. A woman, is that Eve? But she's actually also described the way God describes Israel. And it sounds maybe like it's the Virgin Mary who gives birth to the Messiah. But she's really all of them. But even more importantly, the dragon who is out to kill her son is not a dragon. He's not a dinosaur. He's not a reptile of any kind, mythical or real. The dragon is labeled in chapter 12 as Satan, as the devil. And again in chapter 20 called Satan and the devil, that old serpent. So, clearly we see imagery there. We see a symbol that represents something else. Um, later on in the book of Revelation, uh, we, well, here in our chapter, John sees the son, one like a son of man, who's walking among lampstands and with seven stars in his hand. But the Son of Man says, now, when you see those lampstands, don't just imagine that as a scene in heaven where I'm kind of walking around these candles. The lampstands are the churches. I'm going to address the angels or the messengers of the churches in the next two chapters. They're in my hand. 
So Jesus is interpreting the symbols. And he's saying, I am present among my churches through my Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, John sees a vision in heaven of the elders who have bowls of incense. And the incense symbolizes the prayers of the saints. Chapter 17, John sees a city. But the city doesn't look like a city. It looks like a prostitute. It looks like a loose woman. And she's dressed in luxurious purple and with jewels. But she's called a city. And she's called Babylon. And she sits on a beast that has seven heads, which stand for seven hills. Now, John's first century readers would think, okay, well, there was an Old Testament Babylon, but we know the city that's on seven hills. It's the city of Rome that dominates this whole Mediterranean region right now. And that is the center of our economic system. It is the center of the military and political system for the Roman Empire. So the harlot represents the city. Looks like a woman, but it's really a city. And it's really the city, not of ancient Babylon, but of Rome. So you've got all of these symbols. Some of them are explicitly interpreted, but they're also interwoven with other parts of the visions. And after working with Revelation in teaching it, trying to make sense of it for the years that I have worked on it, I'm actually pretty convinced that the, the kind of the slogan that I learned growing up, literal where possible, take the visions as literally as you can, as, as you possibly can, should almost be reversed. Symbolic where possible. There are literal things in the book of Revelation. No question about it. But typically, Revelation is going to deliver its message in imagery, in symbolism. One commentator that I like a lot, Michael Wilcock, says, think of Revelation a little bit like a political cartoon, where you see uh, Uncle Sam. This is back in the old days when there were newspapers. Remember newspapers? Yeah, yeah, some of you do. You're old enough to that. When there was a, you know, political cartoons, and if, you, if the U.S. was represented by Uncle Sam and, the, and his rotund older sibling, John Bull, representing the United Kingdom and so on, it's kind of like that. And back in the Cold War days, there was the Russian bear, remember the USSR? He says it's, it's, it's being spoken in visible terms that everybody understands symbolize other things. So... I would suggest, in contrast to what I was taught as a kid in the church I grew up in, that we really should have a presumption, kind of a bias in favor of expecting symbolic meaning, visual meaning that represents something else. Um, And partly that's because Revelation keeps showing us that when you look at things on the surface, they don't always... What they look like doesn't always reflect what they really are like. A couple of examples. The church at Laodicea thinks it's wealthy and affluent and healthy. But in that last letter to the churches, the one to Laodicea at the end of chapter 3, Jesus says, you don't know. You're blind. You're naked. You're destitute. You don't know what you're really like. You think because you're materially well, well off that you're good to go. You're sufficient. Not so. As I look at you, as I look beneath the skin, beneath the surface, 
you have desperate needs. To other churches, he says, I know you look poor, but actually you're rich because you're trusting and resting in me. Babylon the harlot, on the one hand, looks beautiful. But on the other hand, John sees that she's drunk on the blood of the saints. Down underneath, she, her whole affluence, power, attraction is built on her hostility to God and his people. She's ugly down underneath. So we need wisdom to understand these visions. Revelation tells us that. Chapter 13, 18. Chapter 17, chapter, verse 9. Both in, in vision sections. You need wisdom to understand what the beast from the sea chapter, uh, and the beast from the land in chapter 13. What the harlot represents. You need wisdom. You need to be able to see what's the, what, it, what are they pointing to. Uh, and you need guidance in interpreting the symbols. When I was taught the literal where possible approach, I recognize that the people who taught me had, they, they were concerned that we not just let our imaginations run wild uh, and just go any which way in interpreting these symbols. Like it's everybody's, it's any, make of it what you will. No. They said, no, there's got to be something that guides us, that keeps our imagination in check, that helps us to see what God means to say by these symbols. They're right about that. Um, I th- what I have come to see is that God has already begun to show us what he means by the symbols, uh, by the key, number three, the Old Testament which supplies the symbolic vocabulary for the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 illustrates it. As I mentioned, the the Son of Man that appears here is the Son of Man that Daniel sees in a vision in Daniel chapter 7. After Daniel saw four monstrous beasts, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a fourth beast that was so terrifying it could not be compared with any of God's creatures. It had iron teeth and it had ten horns. After that, John sees God in heaven, the Ancient of Days, and a Son of Man coming to receive eternal kingdom. The beasts, as we read by the end of Daniel 7, symbolize, represent, they're not really monsters, they're symbols, they're pictures of four Vast, powerful, cruel, pagan world kingdoms. Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great, and then finally followed by Rome. That's what Daniel's visions points to. These symbolize kingdoms. But the Son of Man has victory over all of them. Now in the book of Revelation, John sees one beast who looks like all four of them. He's like a lion, he's like a bear, he's like a leopard, and he has ten horns. He's kind of a composite of world pagan kingdoms that oppose God's people, but cannot destroy God's people. So the Old Testament is a way that God was already preparing his people to understand the visions of this last great book of the New Testament. Other prophetic visions that form some of the backdrop of the book of Revelation. There's a vision, there are visions in Zechariah 3 and 4 
In Zechariah 3, Zechariah sees the high priest of Israel who's supposed to go into the most holy place to intercede for God's people. But his clothing is completely soiled because his heart is completely soiled. He's defiled. And at his elbow is the accuser. In Hebrew, that's the Satan, the opponent, the accuser. And God rebukes the accuser. Get to Revelation 12. And we're going to hear that the accuser of God's people has been disbarred. He cannot accuse us anymore because of the blood of the Lamb. So there's more background there. Zechariah 4, Zechariah sees two olive trees that feed into the menorah in the temple. And the two olive trees represent the priestly line and the kingly line. In Zechariah's day, Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel the king And they together, priest and king, are going to be restored. Those offices are going to be restored. Well, John sees two olive trees in Revelation chapter 11. And they're priests and they're kings and they're also prophets. And it's because of the work of Jesus Christ. All of these things come from the Old Testament. So Moses Stewart was right to say, I need to study the Old Testament prophets and get a grasp on what God was saying then in order to understand what's going on in the book of Revelation. But what God does in the book of Revelation is interesting because it's it's not just taking the Old Testament visions and, and carrying them straight across into New Testament fulfillment. There's also... There's also a, a kind of a transformation. There's continuity, but there's also transformation. Um, great example. I'm really stealing thunder from Sunday morning sermon, but you have to come back and hear the sermon too. Revelation 5, that scroll is sealed in the hands of God the Father. Somebody needs to open the scroll. And John at first thinks nobody is worthy to open the scroll. But then one of the elders says, there is someone worthy. There's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now that's Old Testament picture. All the way back to when Jacob pronounced blessing on his 12 sons in Genesis 49. The blessing on Judah was, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until it comes to the one to whom it belongs. We know that fulfillment is ultimately not just David, from the line of Judah, but Jesus, the greater son of David. So he's a lion, who's conquered, who's worthy to open the scroll. That's what John hears. And when John then sees... What he sees is a lamb. A lamb that's been slain, but also a lamb that's standing. You heard in that first chapter, I died, but I'm alive again forevermore. The death and the resurrection of Christ. The death of the lamb is the triumph of the lion. That's why my publisher wanted to call it the triumph of the lamb. It's, you see, he is the champion from the tribe of Judah. He is the lion. He wins the victory in what looked to all the world like utter defeat and despair 
and abandonment on the cross. But that's when he won the victory. The Lamb. So the principle is, start with the Old Testament symbols, meaning when you can find them, and there's a lot there. But then expect that there's going to be some transformation in the light of the fulfillment that Jesus has brought. Okay, those were the easy ones. Now we're getting into the hard ones. Are you still with me? Okay, good. Okay, number four. This one you're going to have to think about. This is why I've given you the multicolored chart. You can't teach on the book of Revelation without a chart. It took me a long time to come up with this chart. And actually, a good brother at New Life PCA figured out the way to put the colors in, which I'm not computer savvy enough to do. Revelation provides multiple perspectives or varying camera angles through video replays, which um, I give you that nice long word there, recapitulation. Let me illustrate this. Um, I don't know if any of you ever watched the sitcom Cheers years ago, set in Boston. Or the spinoff when Dr. Fraser Crane moved out to Washington State, Seattle, I think. And then there was the spinoff Fraser. Uh, and Fraser was a call-in psychologist. Uh, and, and his father was a man's man, a retired cop. So his father knew sports and Fraser knew almost nothing. There's a scene. If you disapprove of this whole sitcom, I'm sorry, but it fits, okay? Tell me later. Um, There's a scene when Fraser and his dad are sitting in a bar watching a Seattle Seahawks football game. And suddenly there is this fantastic play where the quarterback rolls out and, and the split end goes down. And just on his fingertips, he catches the football in the end zone and the Seahawks are ahead. And the whole bar erupts in, in celebration, applause, and slapping each other on the back. Everybody calms down. And then about a minute and a half later, Fraser gets all excited again. Look at that! Same play! And they scored again, just like that. And his father rolls his eyes and says, Fraser, video replay. Video replay. It was the same play, but just now it was the, fo- the camera was on the split end rather than on the quarterback or something. I don't know. Book of Revelation does this, actually. It shows us the same play from more than one camera angle. A place you can see that very clearly is in Revelation 12, where in Revelation 12, we're going to look at this a little bit more tomorrow morning, but in Revelation 12, John sees a great battle. The woman is about to give birth to the Messiah. The dragon wants to destroy the Messiah. The Messiah is born and caught up to the right hand of God the Father. And the dragon cannot destroy the seed of the woman, the son of the woman. And the dragon, in frustration, goes after the woman to try to destroy her. That's kind of a picture of the history of Israel. Israel is the mother of the Messiah. Satan wants to destroy the Messiah. Can't do it. And now he's out to persecute God's people. That's the first six verses. The rest of the chapter shows us the same battle from a different angle. Now it looks like what's going on in heaven. Now Michael, the head of God's forces, fighting against the dragon, and the dragon is defeated. He's cast down from heaven. I said, actually, in the comments you see in Revelation 12, he's defeated by the blood of the Lamb. 
is defeated by Christ dying on the cross. And the dragon, again, in frustration now, goes after the woman and she's protected in the wilderness. So there's God saying, now, look at this again from another perspective. Look at what happened at the turning point of history with the victory of Jesus. And that happens actually a bunch of times in the book of Revelation. There are cycles in the book of Revelation, sets of seven periodically that come around. And sometimes they really cast light on one another. So you see, for example, the lamb opening the seals, all in orange here. That whole seal sequence actually kind of overlaps and shows us from one perspective what we're also going to see in the yellow squares, at least in part, when the trumpets are sounded. And then finally we see the bowls at the end. But I want you especially to notice the blue boxes. The woman, the child, and the dragon. That's what I just summarized. The first six verses of chapter 12 show us basically Satan trying to destroy Christ. Can't do it, but persecutes God's people. Satan, expelled from heaven by the sacrifice of Christ, can't accuse God's people any longer, but he still wants to destroy them by persecution. And then notice the third blue box. The same period of time, Satan defeated, not destroyed, not yet, but defeated. Revelation 20, bound so he can't keep the nations in darkness so the gospel can go out to the ends of the earth. Defeated, but still persecuting the church. There's still martyrs dying for the faith, but the martyrs are ruling in heaven. So, the order of the writing of Revelation goes from the top of the page to the bottom of the page. The order of the events symbolized in the book of Revelation go from the left to the right of the page. And notice how often the order of the writing comes back around to the same events, but from a different angle, from a different perspective. That's what New Testament students call recapitulation. And there are various places. And what that means, among other things, is you don't just read John's visions as though one vision after another refers to the same historical event, one historical event after another. Because sometimes things happen in a different order in history than they happen in John's visions. Jesus says in this first chapter, John, I want you to write the things that are and the things that are going to happen later. And in the fourth chapter, Jesus again says, now write the things that are going to happen later, which implies that what we've read in chapters 1, 2, and 3 are largely about the present condition of those churches in the first century from Ephesus all the way around to Laodicea. And that from chapter 4 on, you might think everything's about things future to John and his first century generation. But remember, I just said that chapter 12 actually takes us back to the birth of the Messiah. So that happened before John ministered to these churches. And other things don't seem to quite fit if you try to read the visions as a map of the events. One vision follows another, follow another, events follow event. Um, yeah, for example, in the sixth seal, which happens at, toward the end of chapter six, in the sixth seal, we read that when that seal is broken, the sky is removed, the stars fall to the, to the earth, 
the mountain and the islands are moved. But then at the beginning of chapter 7, the wind that knocked the stars down is still being restrained. And then when you get to chapter 8, verse 12, the stars are still up in the sky. Only a third of them are darkened. And then when you get to chapter 16, then you read about the islands and the mountains being moved again. So again, this suggests that we're looking, we're looping back around and God is saying, these things are going to happen, but not in the order of the visions. Sometimes I'm going to show you in a later vision what I showed you in an earlier vision. Well, I could illustrate that more, but I think I'm going to move on just in the interest of time. We can talk more about it or you can ask more questions about that later. The principle here is parallel features in various visions may well be signals that the visions are different perspectives on the same events or trends. And so we don't want to confuse the order of the visions with the order of the events they symbolize. Ultimately, yes, at the end of Revelation, we do see what is definitely coming in the future, not just for John, but for us 20 centuries later. And that's the return of Christ, the defeat of death, the defeat of Satan, and the new heavens and the new earth. But in the meanwhile, the visions in the middle sometimes loop back around and say, now look at this from a different angle. And that, I think, also helps us to make sense of key number five, which may be a bit puzzling when you first look at it. Revelation concerns what must soon take place. Did you notice that at the beginning of Revelation 1? Jesus sent, actually 1-1, Jesus gave, God gave Jesus this revelation to show his servants things that must soon take place. And then again in verse 3, hold on to these things because the time is near. Now, the book of Revelation was given to John. The visions were given to John somewhere, some say in the 60s, I think more likely in the 90s, not the 1990s, the 90s, first century. And yet Jesus hasn't come back yet, right? So why does Jesus say here, and he says it at the end of the book as well, he says, I'm talking about things that must soon take place. In fact, at the end of the book, he even says, the command is given to John, don't seal up this book. Daniel was told to seal up his prophecy because his prophecy was about things at a very distant time from Daniel's day. But John's not. Don't seal up the book because the time is at hand. Some things in Revelation clearly were at a long distance from John's readers, John's hearers in the first century. But much of the book of Revelation was about the warfare that they themselves found themselves into. With false teaching, with the lure of luxury and affluence, with the threat of overt violent persecution, all of those things were going on in John's day. When I read, finally, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, I was told that the locusts in Revelation 7 represent attack helicopters. Sounded plausible at the time. But then I thought, what would John's readers 
in the first century. How could they have conceived of that? And then I also noticed that the locusts come out of the abyss and that their captain is Satan. And I thought, no, 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 wait a minute. The locusts there symbolize demons, demonic oppression and possession let loose on people that were already in captivity to Satan. It's not about 20th or 21st century technology that they would not have understood. It's about things that they knew and the spiritual battle that they engaged in. Now, there is still the second coming, future for John, future for us. And that, I believe, is part of the point of John being given this vision, showing Satan bound for a thousand years, a symbolic number, I would suggest, not simply a thousand years, but a vast period of time beyond your lifetime, John, beyond the lifetime of the first century churches, way off in the future. I'm keeping Satan bound so he can't keep the nations in darkness so the gospel can go out to the ends of the earth. That's really, amazingly, the thousand-year vision in 20 is a missions text. If you wonder about that, come back tomorrow morning. We'll get there. It's a missions text. No, that's Sunday morning. That's Sunday school class. I'm remembering, trying to remember where we are in these things. Uh, but it's a long way off. But the point that Jesus makes here is, for John and his first century hearers, these things are touching on your very experience. So we shouldn't think that only we who live 20 centuries later have the keys to unlock this book. It was accessible to John's first century audience as well. Two more points quickly, and then we can have some q and I'm sure I've raised more questions than I've given answers, maybe. We'll see. Um, Revelation is for a church under attack. John's own situation, he mentions Patmos here. He's exiled on a Roman prison island in California. Up in the Bay Area, we have Alcatraz in the middle of the San Francisco Bay between San Francisco and Oakland, Berkeley. It's a prison island. Now it's kind of a national monument, but whatever. Rome's eastern prison island was Patmos off the coast of what is now Turkey. So John, even saying that, is saying, because I was there for the sake of the testimony of Jesus, you know I was there because I was a faithful witness to Christ. And I am, as he says here, your partner in suffering and kingdom and patient endurance in Jesus. And we see the attacks that the church is under in a lot of different ways. There are actually seven blessings, benedictions pronounced in the book of Revelation. The first one we heard, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud and the many who hear and keep the words for the time is at hand. The next several blessings have to do with the, the attacks on the church. 14.13, chapter 14, verse 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, for they rest from their labors. Chapter 16.15. Blessed is the one who stays awake and stays clothed and is ready when the battle on the great day of God the Almighty comes. The blessings often speak of being faithful in the midst of persecution. And then there are the promises to the overcomers. Seven letters 
in chapters 2 and 3. One to each of the, the churches in each of those seven cities. And each one closes with a promise to those who overcome. To overcome in various ways. Some of the churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, are being attacked by persecution very directly. They're being repudiated by the Jewish community and they're also being subject to persecution by the Roman authorities. Blessed are those who overcome and stay faithful under persecution. Other churches are being attacked in more subtle ways. False teaching. Thyatira has a woman, Jesus calls her Jezebel, to compare her with the Old Testament Queen Jezebel who introduced idolatry into the northern kingdom of Israel, who is deceiving the people of God and trying to lead them astray into so-called knowledge that's unfaithful to the Lord. Others are being lured away, like Laodicea, as I mentioned, by affluence and comfort and luxury. The church is under attack from a lot of different sources. The same as it is today, actually. You know that we have brothers and sisters who are being persecuted because they belong to the name of Jesus in a variety of places, including in the place to which this letter was first addressed. We have an alumnus, a graduate, who has planted a church in Izmir, which is the modern city of Smyrna. And he's been brought in for interrogation several times as the Turkish government has been closing down its control He has friends who've been arrested. He has friends, associates, who, not from the government, but from terrorists, have been killed for their faith. The church is under attack. That's only one place in the world. It's under attack attack as Islam spreads into parts of Africa. Uh, It's under attack in India. It's under attack in various places in the world by persecution. Aren't you glad we live in America where the church is not under attack? Good, you're getting the point. We are under attack. Maybe not that way, not even close to that way. But Satan has various tools. And if the beast from the sea, which kind of represents Satan's strong arm coercion, is not the way that he's going after the church in America today, might be the beast from the land, which who is also called a false prophet and just false teaching. Or it might be the harlot. It might be the lure of affluence and comfort. Francis Schaeffer, um, some of you may know Francis Schaeffer's name, uh, founder of Labrie, PCA minister from an earlier generation, said that the idols of the American church are personal peace and affluence. Don't bother me and let me have my stuff. I was actually preaching through the book of Revelation until we called a new pastor. I was preaching in our church uh, on Sunday evenings through the book of Revelation. And on September 9th, 2001, I had reached Revelation 16 and 17, the fall of Babylon. And you remember what happened two days later. Why did they aim for the trade towers and the Pentagon? I think the terrorists thought these are the things in which America trusts. They didn't aim for any of our cathedrals, you notice. 
They aim for the center of U.S. military power and for a symbol of U.S. economic commercial dominance. I don't know what I would have said if I'd gotten to that text the week after 9-11, but I'd said it before. We need to be on guard because Satan may well be attacking the church in America, mostly through the harlot, through our abundance. And like Laodicea, we've got a lot of stuff. We are under attack. The point of this book is not to give Bible-believing Christians something to argue about, about a timeline for end of history. The point of this book is to fortify us for the spiritual battle that is going on behind the scenes all the time. To make us alert to the various weapons that our enemy uses to try to undermine our faith. Which is why we need key number seven. The victory belongs to God and to his Christ. I've heard the story so many places, I have no idea where it actually came from. A bunch of seminary students playing basketball in a gym someplace while the custodian was cleaning up around the edges. And they were debating the book of Revelation up one side and down the other. What were the visions? What were the timelines? All those kind of stuff. And the custodian finally said, what are you boys all talking about? And uh, they said, well, we're debating this book of Revelation. And he said, I've read that book again and again, and I know what it's about. Jesus is going to win. He got it. Jesus is going to win. And that's the point of the book of Revelation. One of the beautiful things about the book of Revelation that I don't recall ever hearing as a child or as a young person growing up in a church that talked about it from time to time were the songs. The songs in the book of Revelation which are celebrations of the greatness of our God. The songs in chapters 4 and 5, we'll look at those a little bit this weekend, extolling God who sits on the throne for all of his infinite perfections. And then a song extolling God for the work of creation and his work of providence. Everything works as he wants it to. And then extolling the Lamb who was slain and redeemed by his blood people from all the nations. And to the Lamb who deserves all the praise. And to the enthroned one and to the Lamb. All that in four and five. Five songs. And then a song in chapter 7. And then a song in chapter 11. And then songs in chapter 19. Celebrating the victory of God. Until you come to the end and the climax is that all of God's enemies. The dragon, the beasts, the harlot, death, and the grave, Hades, all destroyed and God's people ushered in to the new Jerusalem. No, actually not just ushered into the new Jerusalem. We are the new Jerusalem. It's not just a big city. It's God's people being shown to be a city founded on the apostles in continuity with the people of God of old. So the tribes the names of the tribes of Israel are on the gates and the apostles are the foundation stones. It's us in the new heavens and the new earth where there's no more curse. God is going to win. It is a book of incredible encouragement to us. Realistic, because it says we're really in the battle. 
but also incredibly encouraging because it assures us that our champion has already won the decisive battle on the cross. The accuser cannot accuse us any longer because the blood of the Lamb has washed us white. And now we're working out, living out his victory as the gospel goes to the nations. Well, those are the keys that help me come at the specifics in the book of Revelation. I I hope they will help you. Uh, We have some time, I think, for some questions. We're going to... The aim is to close around 8.30, according to the schedule. schedule. So, uh, what questions have I raised in your mind so far? We have a microphone coming to you. When I ran out of the when I ran out of the house this morning at 3:30, I almost left my hearing aids at home. That would have been serious. The van driver waited for me to run back in, but now with a mic, I'm in good. I'm good to go, and I got my hearing aids too. All right. Yes. No real questions right now. I'm looking forward to your next series, uh, but I do want to state that. You made a very important point that I think it was a point, but I so agree with you that I see history, revelations playing out this very moment in our history with what's going on. Christians are being persecuted throughout the world. Uh, We are not doing enough to help them. And I just pray, without being political... I will be a little critical, that our administration will now help out Israel, who you brought a very important point up to me, that Israel is the mother of Christianity. And I just pray for Israel. And I look forward to next series. And by the way, when, when we, what month were you born in? I was born in March. I was born in November, so. It was a good year. It was a good year. Yes. Yeah, I, you know, I, I pray for Israel too. Um, not just for Israel, the nation, but for what Paul, Paul says in, in Romans chapter 11. For those who belong to that covenant heritage because they're actually biologically descended from Abraham, um, but who have so many been, as it were, broken off from the olive tree because they've not believed in their Messiah, which is our Gentile, I mean, the Savior for us Gentiles, too. And I think that's the key thing to pray, as Paul says about his own Jewish kinsmen, I long that they would come to faith in Jesus the Messiah, because that's the rescue that we all need. Politically, things go up and down all over the place, but the rescue that ultimately is needed is, and that we need to be praying for is that we... Many more. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
either I've answered all questions or we're in total stunned shock. (laughs) Or we're saving our fire for tomorrow, and that's fine too. I'll give you more to think about tomorrow. Any more? No? No other questions? That's it. Rapture? Nothing? Tomorrow. Okay, y'all are going to save your power. Raptures and (laughs) Thessalonians. I'm not touching on that question. Thank you, Dennis. Um, yep. I hope you're. I hope you feel encouraged already. Um, I feel like I can actually maybe attempt to preach through this book. Yeah. Uh, I recommend it. It'll be a little bit like the. It'll be a little bit like the sermon series you described at the beginning, though, right? First four or five chapters real strong, and then we'll, yeah, slide up. Um, listen, I hope that was an encouragement to you. Tomorrow morning, we're going to start, is it 9 o'clock? My memory? 9? Yeah, 9. So 9 o'clock, uh, we'll have some pastries. Uh, we'll have a mid-morning break with some coffee, pastries, and that sort of thing. And um, and so uh, come tomorrow, bring a, call a friend, grab somebody if, if you still uh, if you have time. And, um, and come tomorrow morning and we'll be encouraged together. Um, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this evening and we do, uh, we give you thanks uh, for Dennis being with us and for opening the word. Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation, uh, a book that uh, so often uh, we feel as though we could do without and yet you've given it to us for uh, the encouragement and uh, the sustainment of your people uh, down through the ages uh, with the a certain reminder in it that indeed Christ is victorious and, uh, and he wins. And because he has won, because he has conquered death and is alive, uh, your people will know um, the freedom that comes in that as well. And so we give you praise and thanks this evening. We pray that you'll go with us, watch over us, and bring us back again tomorrow in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks.